Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is September 2020. And I think the one thing we can agree on is this is a rather cloying, claustrophobic time. Uh, The walls are closing in on us, quite literally, of course, with the pandemic and with the news of Trump and the election, it seems as if we're living in a smaller and smaller place. So it's time to escape both in time and place. Uh, Let's go back 500 years from September 2020, back to September 1520. According to my guest today, uh, something of grand historical importance happened in 15 in september 1520 and it's not what any of you will expect i don't think anyone could guess at least anyone who hasn't read uh alan uh mikhail's new book god's shadow what happened alan in september 1520 um the ninth sultan of the ottoman empire died that might seem to be a rather, um, a, a, a rather footnoted reference to 16th century world history. But Alan, in your book, God's Shadow, you argue that this ninth Sultan, Sultan Selim, was one of the major figures, not only in the, the 16th century, perhaps the major figure in 16th century world history, but also a figure that we should know more about today. And indeed, your book is essentially a narrative about his life and accomplishments. What's the big deal about uh, Selim, Alan? So Selim lived from 1470 to 1520. Um, And during his lifetime, the Ottoman Empire, I argue in the book, was central to many of the world-changing events that took place in those 50 years. So we can list them off, 1492 in all its meanings, both the Atlantic voyages and the Reconquista of Spain, the Reformation, the Commercial Revolution, the establishment of um, world powers, states that would last some of them into the 20th century. Um, And for the Ottoman Empire itself, Selim's reign was one of the most significant reigns in the entire 600-year history of the Ottoman Empire, even though it was quite brief, only eight years, because he led the largest expansion of the Ottoman Empire in those 600 years with his conquest of the Mamluk Empire in 1516-1517. And that Mamluk Empire was centered in Cairo, right? Yes. So he, he, he conquered much of North Africa, too, to what... Double, at least, was it to double the, the size of the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, more than double the size of the empire. It, it made it, um, an, uh, rather than being an empire that was mostly in the Balkans and Western Anatolia, gave it all of the Arab world, what we think of as the Middle East today, North Africa, as you said, put it down the west coast of Saudi Arabia um, on the Red Sea. Um, it gives the Ottoman Empire essentially the shape that it will have until its end in World War I. 
Now, one 19th century historian, Alan, you mentioned in your book, describes Salim as a, a sanguinary tyrant, the kind of uh, typical Ottoman Empire who played football with the decapitated heads of the people he executed. Does Selim fall into the sort of classic Orientalist conception of these bloodthirsty, evil Muslim rulers? Um, well, so I would, I would resist that Orientalist characterization of, of potentates of the East, let's call them. Um, I think um, lots of rulers in this period in the 16th century were, were pretty bloody folks. Um, there are lots of executions happening in squares around the world. Um, Selim is um, known sometimes in Turkish as Selim the Grim. That is one of the nicknames that he's, that he's given. Um, he did a lot of killing and, and maiming and, and lots of bloody things um, during his life for sure. Um, he led one of the largest domestic massacres in Ottoman history up until the 19th century with his, his killing of 40,000 Shiites in Anatolia. Um, so he was a pretty ruthless, um, pretty ruthless guy. Um, I argue in the book that that's also one of the reasons that he's able to take over the throne against um, some pretty sizable odds. Can we blame some of this bloodthirstiness on his mother? You note in the book, and I, I was very intrigued with this, I didn't know this about the Ottoman Empire, uh, that once uh, one of the, 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 the essentially slave women who, who, or the concubines who, who, who fornicate with, 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 with the, uh, the ruling, uh, the, the, the ruling, uh, the ruling um, caliphate, do we call it caliphate or emperor? Alan? The, the sultan. The sultan. So once, once you have sex with the sultan as a woman and you have a child, then that's it. Uh, and then you go when off. You have a son. Right, when you have a son. So, uh, so, so the, the uh, shall we say, the Anne Boleyns of the uh, Ottoman Empire, although she, of course, didn't have a son, uh, but they become very powerful. And, and Selim's mother was the, the power in some ways behind the crown. Is that fair? That, that is fair to say, and that's, that's one of the things that I discuss in the book um, in some detail, is, is that when Selim is um, a teenager, he is officially made the governor of a very sizable town on the frontier of the Ottoman Empire, far to the east on the Black Sea, um, and he is posted there with his mother. Um, and it's very clear that for many, many years, even once he's in adulthood, that it's kind of joint rule in, in the city between his mother and, and Selim himself. And she's responsible for his education as a royal, for teaching him you know, the governing arts, um, how to become a sultan, for positioning him in, in, in the um, dynastic politics of the empire, all of those kinds of things. And this was, this was not uncommon in the, in the Ottoman dynastic system that the mothers of princes are essential to the success of these princes. How were the concubines selected, by the way? I, I, I've never understood that. Right, so most of them came into the harems of both sultans and princes through conquest and war, and sometimes the slave trade. Um, in this period, uh, they come mostly from the Balkans. So Selim's mother, as best we know, probably came from Albania originally. Um, but um, they also would have come from, you know, what is today Ukraine, parts of southern Russia, and then also the Caucasus. Um, and it, it is an interesting fact of Ottoman history that, again, in 600 years, the mother of every sultan is technically a slave woman who was more often than not born a Christian in a culture other than Ottoman culture. 
The subtitle of, of your wonderful new book, God's Shadow, Alan, is Sultan Selim, His Ottoman Empire and the Making of the Modern World. The book is making news because of your argument that, that this short reign of, of Selim uh, represents a kind of doorstep on modernity. Uh, you argue that his life encapsulated the most, maybe the most consequential 50 years in world history. Explain, why, why, is, this, why is the time of Selim so consequential in, in world history? Well, if we think about those 50 years again, 1470 to 1520, and we think about our modern world, we ascribe a lot of power to those years. So I think first and foremost, it's 1492. Um, the colonization, incorporation, politically loaded terms, uh, but, but the, 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 the connection of Europe um, and the old world to the new world and everything that that meant for world history afterwards. Uh, just um, uh, just because there are going to be some people, Alan, I'm afraid to tell you, I know you're a professor of history at Yale, so you teach some pretty smart people, but not everyone knows what happened in 1492. What happened? Okay, so um, it, thank you. Um, in, in, in 1492, um, many things happened, of course, but the two major things that I uh, focus on are in the book are the Reconquista in Spain, which um, is the phenomenon whereby Catholic powers conquer the last Muslim kingdom in southern Spain. Muslims had ruled in Spain for over seven, seven centuries. Um, and in 1492, they, the, at the Battle of Granada, the last Muslim sovereign is defeated. Um, and all of, of, of uh, Iberia is ruled by Catholic powers. In that same year, about six months after that, um, that was in January, the Reconquista, um, Columbus is sent by um, two of the sovereigns who are most responsible for this Reconquista, um, Isabella and Ferdinand, is sent across the Atlantic, um, he says, on a voyage to find an alternative route to India. Now, for lots of people, uh, scholars and, and laypersons, these two events are thought of as separate phenomena. Columbus um, connects them on the very first page of his of his um, journal of the Atlantic voyages, he makes very clear that these two events are two sides of the same coin for him. Mm. The defeat of Islam in Spain and the journey to India. Why are they connected in his mind? Um, as I argue in the book, we should think of Columbus not as a secular explorer, not as a, as a mercantilist, uh, but first and foremost as a crusader. Um, the, the confrontation between Islam and Christendom was the largest geopolitical force that uh, shaped his life. And that's how he thought about his voyages um, to what he considered to be the East, was that this was a way of getting around Muslim power. It wasn't only a way of getting around the trade monopolies that Muslims held in the Eastern Mediterranean, but he thought, um, as he learned from Marco Polo and reading, reading other earlier um, um, travelers and, and geographers, that there was a potentate, a ruler off in a vague place in Asia who supposedly had interest in Christianity. And so Columbus's plan is to find this potentate, help him to convert to Christianity, um, convert all of his, his subjects to Christianity as well, and then in one apocalyptic pincer move, the Christians of Europe and the Christians of the East would crush the Muslims in the middle. 
um, and in their minds, reclaim uh, Jerusalem for Christendom and expunge Islam from the face of the earth in the same way that um, Catholics had just expunged Islam from Iberia. So, um, you know, part of the work of my book is to restore the two sides of that coin, um, to think about Islam when we think about um, Columbus's um, arrival in the Caribbean. We don't usually think of his arrival in the Caribbean in that way, but, um, you know, I'm arguing that that's a really important part of the story. Do you think then some of the crimes of uh, this, the, the, the Spanish sailors in the New World, not only Columbus, but many others in what we now call Latin America, that might be somehow knitted in, the treatment of indigenous people was somehow reflected in their attitude to Muslims? Absolutely. So again, in the sources themselves from that period, um, we see Columbus and other conquistadors like Cortez refer to indigenous peoples using terms derived from the Muslim world, from their experience of Islam. So Columbus says, for example, that um, indigenous women in the Caribbean, Taino women, somehow look like Moorish women to him, Muslim women. He describes their weapons as uh, uh, using terms for uh, Muslim weaponry in Spain. Cortez writes that there are 400 mosques in Mexico in 1520. He calls Montezuma a sultan. So all, all, of, all of this kind of vocabulary of Islam is brought with the Spaniards to uh, the Caribbean and is a part of how they understand otherness, how they understand who their enemies are, how they understand warfare. So I, I do think it's crucial for our understanding of the encounter between um, these Spaniards and um, indigenous peoples in the Caribbean to understand the filter through which the Spaniards understood that encounter. And that's really the filter of their experience of Islam in the old world. So Islam has a role to play in the story of the colonization of the Americas. Um, in this very, very early period, it's mostly in the imagination of the Spaniards. Perhaps then it's no coincidence that the kind of language uh, Trump and, and some of his people used to describe Islamic terrorists is similar to the way in which they used to describe uh, uh, immigrants from, from Latin America. Uh, meanwhile, in this grand historical stage that you introduce, Alan, whilst the, the, the Roman Catholic Spaniards are reconquering, so to speak, uh, southern Spain, there's something else brewing in Northern Europe. What's that? So, um, you know, it was interesting me, for me to think about uh, what were the connections between Martin Luther's Reformation in 1517 and Selim's conquest of the Mamluk Empire in 1517. Was there a coincidence? Or was there a, um, um, a connection or was it mere coincidence that these two things happened in um, the same year? So I started reading Martin Luther's um, um, writings. He writes a lot about the, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks. They're always the Turks for him. He's very interested in Islam as religion. Um, he uses Islam as a kind of battering ram against the Catholic Church, which is his main enemy. So he often compares the Pope to the, to the Ottoman Sultan and says, um, you know, both are evil, but the Pope is, is much worse because he attacks the Christian soul um, whereas the Ottoman Sultan can only capture the human body, right? Um, he sees lots to admire theologically in, um, in Islam. It's iconoclasm, 
It's anti-clericalism, the fact that there's no Muslim Pope figure in the way that there is in the Catholic Church. Um, so it serves as a mirror for him in all these ways. Um, 1517 is precisely important because um, with this huge expansion that Salim um, um, succeeds in making, Catholic powers are very, very worried about Ottoman advances west in the Mediterranean. And so all of their military capacities are devoted to monitoring Ottoman advances. And therefore, it allows some space within Europe for these rival, um, the, the, these, these rival movements to emerge, one of which is Martin Luther's in 1517. So it's a counterfactual we will never know. But were it not for Salim's conquest of the Mamluk Empire in 1517, perhaps um, um, the, 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 the Catholic Church would have put down Martin Luther um, more strongly than it was able to do. Fascinating thesis, uh, Alan. And no, uh, no Salim, no Luther, no Reformation, no capitalism. Who knows how world history would have turned out without Salim. Uh, you also suggest that Salim had an influence on political philosophy. You, you link his rule with the thinking of uh, Machiavelli, the, perhaps the most powerful of all 16th century political philosophers, the founder of modern philosophy. What's the connection between Salim and Machiavelli? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned Machiavelli, you know, in maybe two sentences in the book, but, uh, but yes, he is very interested in, in the Ottomans. So he, um, he is jealous of the fact that the Ottoman sultans, um, including Salim, um, have a standing army. Whereas most um, European powers, whenever they go to war, they have to raise an army. It's usually an army of mercenaries. They're not professional soldiers. It's very costly. Uh, they're sort of unruly and hard to manage. Whereas the, the Ottomans have figured out a way to have a standing, salaried, ready army so that whenever they go to, to warfare, they don't have to deal with the, um, the, the headache and the expense of raising an army. So Machiavelli, you, you know, notices this as, as, as one of the reasons that the Ottomans are so powerful. Alan, uh, let's fast forward a little bit, maybe not 500 years, but let's look back at the legacy of the Ottoman Empire. As you suggest in your book and in this conversation, uh, Ottoman rulers like Salim have been, quote unquote, um, uh, orientalized and presented as these barbaric leaders when, of course, they aren't. And the same is true of, of the achievements of, of the Ottoman Empire. With uh, the increasing nationalism of the early part of the 21st century, do you think we have more and more to learn from the Ottomans in the way in which they organized their empire and they incorporated ethnicity within the broader context of empire? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think I, I would even answer it more broadly than just the Ottoman Empire, but the, the early modern centuries, the centuries before, as you say, uh, the kind of nationalism that we're so familiar with today really gets going in the 19th century. Um, an empire like the Ottoman Empire, we could think of the Habsburgs, um, we could think of the Holy Roman Empire, um, we could think of the Qing. Um, these are empires, these are states that encompass within them many different kinds of religions, uh, many different kinds of ethnicities, many languages, um, many different cultures, and are able to hold all of that together. Um, there is not an interest um, before nationalism in inculcating a kind of um, culture that, that every subject of the empire must speak Turkish in this case, or 
you know, must pledge allegiance uh, to uh, a certain set of ideals that we all uh, agree to. Um, and, and there is this sense of a kind of ecumenicalism, if I can use that word, or, or a kind of, um, I don't mean, I don't want to use the term multiculturalism, because that has very, you know, specific resonances in America today, but, 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 but simply having many cultures exist within the same place. Um, there's a lot of local autonomy in the early modern period, including in the Ottoman Empire, that I think does provide, and I don't want to romanticize anything here, but does provide an alternative understanding of how politics should be organized. So in our world today where, um, you know, borders are becoming more and more fixed, obviously in the United States, but um, in Europe as well and elsewhere, um, when minorities are um, discriminated against in, in, in really vir virulent ways, um, when immigrants are disparaged, um, when um, uh, wealth disparities overtake all of our lives, when all of these things are happening. I, I think it is worth us thinking about other ways of organizing our politics. And um, the early modern era is in some ways the last example that we have before nationalism. So we might be able to learn something from that. Of course, um, I think history moves uh, forward, not backward. Um, so I think it's definitely worth studying, but, but I don't want to prescribe a kind of early modern solution to our modern ills. There'll be some people, Alan, uh, I hope not too many, but there'll be some listening and watching this who still don't really know the difference between the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. Now, of course, they're entirely different political, cultural phenomenon. You end uh, your wonderful book in modern Turkey, actually on the Selim Bridge, this bridge that was, I think it was renamed by Erzegen, um, um, the, the bridge, the famous remarkable bridge in, in Istanbul, linking uh, uh, Asia and, and Europe. We've had a lot of conversations on this show about the nature of modern Turkey, of Erzegen. We've had Elif Shafak, Sali Özel, Ece Temel Kuren. I'm sure you're familiar with all of them, leading uh, Turkish journalists and thinkers. Um, in, in, in your book, uh, what does Selim and the Ottoman Empire tell us about the failings of, of, of Erzegen? Uh, I got the sense from your conclusion that you're not a big fan of him or his version of Turkish nationalism. So, you know, it's striking that he makes a decision to name this new bridge. It's a newly constructed bridge, the third bridge over the Bosphorus. And it's a remarkable bridge. I mean, in, in architectural terms, uh, astonishing. Absolutely, absolutely. It's an engineering feat. Um, he makes the decision to name it after Selim. So I think that poses a question to me, why? He could name it after any historical figure. He could name it after his children. He could do all kinds of things. Uh, why this particular person? Um, and the answer that I give in the, in the book is that Selim provides a kind of model of uh, Turkish rule in the world that Erdogan finds attractive. How so? First of all, it's expansive. As I said, Selim more than doubles the size of the empire, conquering his rivals in the Middle East, conquering territory. In terms of regional hegemony within the Middle East today, um, Erdogan uh, would like Turkey to be um, um, aggressive in, in various parts of the region. So we can think of Libya, we can think of Northern Syria, obviously. We can think of this, this recent 
Greece. Yeah, the kerfuffle over natural gas in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, in, in all of these kinds of ways, he has e expansionist um, um, horizons. And, and I think Salim provides a model for that. Salim is the first Ottoman Sultan to rule Mecca and Medina, which gives him uh, a legitimate claim to being the Caliph of the Muslim world. The Caliph is the holder of the holy cities. Um, so um, Erdogan, it's a very complicated story, but is an Islamist of a kind. And so that, that wedding of secular and um, religious authority that Salim embodies, again, I, I think provides a kind of model for Erdogan. Um, and then finally, um, I, I mentioned that Salim leads one of the largest domestic massacres in Ottoman history up until the 19th century. Um, Erdogan has gone after many of his domestic enemies, journalists, academics, um, ethnic minorities, um, and uh, th this kind of strongman politics on the domestic front, again, is something in a very different context, obviously, that, that Salim seems to embody for Erdogan. So for all these reasons, I think Salim provides a, a very nice container for some of the politics that Erdogan is, is undertaking today. And a nice end to your, to your wonderful book, a, a, a bridge to the future, a bridge to the past, and literally a bridge. Uh, finally, Alan, uh, you, you, you said historians can't look, well, we can't look backwards. Uh, history always moves forward. You, as the chair of the Yale History Department, knows that better than most. Let's think forward. Let's put on our science fiction camps. Think perhaps 2520, 500 years, 1,000 years after Salim's death, September 2020. Do you think, uh, so September 25, 2020, when the... The, the, the 26th century version of Alan Mikhail writes his book about the 21st century. Uh, do you think the equivalent of Salim will be Xi Jinping? Do you think 2020 represents in many ways a symbolic end to this Western dominance that began in 1520? Inter interesting question. Um, I mean, my, my quick answer is I don't know. Um, but I do, I, do think, I do think we are in a moment of um, transition, and these transitions are slow. I think it's, it's clear that, uh, you know, American empire around the world is waning in some way, um, that um, Chinese power has been um, projected into the world in all kinds of ways. Um, the One Belt, One Road, uh, you know, the ports in Africa and Latin America, et cetera. Um, so we're certainly at an inf inflection point in terms of, of world power. I think it is interesting to think about, um, and I'm not the only person um, who's thought about this, there are several books on this, um, an idea that we are in some ways going back to a more normal state of affairs in world history where large powers in Asia um, are the world's strongest states. That was the case, um, you know, up until we could argue about a date, but, you know, 1600, 1750, something like that, before um, the rise of, of Europe and America. And in many ways, as, as in, in most specifically in our case, America seems to be retreating from its place of dominance in world power. Um, we have a place like China, um, maybe India, um, rising in prominence in, in world history. So 
I, I certainly think that, that we're moving in that direction. Is it this year that it happens? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, as a historian, I would say the, these things are slow and, and happen over a set of decades, but I think we're certainly in the midst of that process. Well, Alan, you've certainly provided a, a wonderful respite from the claustrophobia that I think many of us are experiencing, both in cultural and physical terms. Have you allowed us to escape September 2020 with all its grimness? Uh, finally, finally, Alan, you're in, uh, I think, Gramercy Park in, in Manhattan, not a bad place to be during the lockdown. Everyone's stuck inside. As a historian, um, or just as a, a, an American citizen, any suggestions for what people should be reading or watching during our strange times? In addition, of course, to your new book, God's Shadow, Sultan Salim, His Ottoman Empire and the Making of the Modern World, which I think is essential reading for our strange times. Uh, sure, yeah, I can tell you some of the things that I've been reading. Um, um, so they're a combination of things I've been meaning to read for a very long time and then new things that have come across my desk. In the realm of things that um, I've been meaning to read for a very long time, I have here Washington Irving's um, A History of New York. Um, I live a few blocks away from a street named after Washington Irving where, where he lived for a while. Um, and this book is, is a, very interesting, um, um, a very interesting text in that it is largely a fictionalized version of the Dutch period of New York City's history. Um, and a lot of the myths about New York City come from this book. So um, the idea of the Knickerbocker, um, um, what, the, 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 the first idea that um, Americans invented the donut comes from, from this book. And it's really, um, it's kind of a, a, um, um, a really roller coaster kind of read. Um, so I've enjoyed reading this. Um, this book just came across my desk and, you know, I wish I would have had it when I was writing God's Shadow. This is a new book called The Dawning of the Apocalypse. The subtitle is it's a long one. The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 19th Century. Um, I can't say how I have started this. Who's it I, by? Because I need to get that person on the show. Yeah, Gerald Horn. Okay. Well, Gerald, if you're watching, you have an over, open invitation to come on the show and talk about the, what is it, the new apocalypse or the old apocalypse, the dawning of the apocalypse. Perfect, uh, perfectly appropriate for our times. Right. A historian at the University of Houston. Um, and then I've also been reading this book, which is about uh, the, the Princess and the Prophet, which is about um, kind of the early history of um, uh, black Muslims in the United States. Um, and it's a really, really interesting um, um, uh, text that tries to uh, weave together a story of, of black nationalism, um, uh, performance um, and um, a, a notion of the East in early 20th century America and provides an alternative history, I think. Um, I'm no expert, but, but the little that I know, an alternative history of um, the rise of, of, um, of um, Islam in, in the United States, the nation of Islam and its, and its predecessors. Um, in terms of things I'm watching, I've been watching, um, um, I think you mentioned in passage science fiction. I've been actually trying to watch a lot of science fiction. 
um, during the pandemic. Um, I've been watching this kind of comedy Avenue Five, um, which is a lot of fun. And I've been watching, it's still going, um, Lovecraft Country, which I've, I've really, really enjoyed. Um, it's, science fiction is not something I generally like, um, but I suppose it's some function of, you know, our existence in this moment that is, is pulling me towards something that's otherworldly. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.